Well, good evening and welcome. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40 tonight. It's, uh, it's Christmas Eve, and so I thought it might be fun for us to take a few minutes and try to remember what it was like, what this night was like when we were children. For some of you, you might have to think back further than others. Do you remember, though, the thrill of Christmas Eve? Do you remember the expectation, the anticipation, the excitement that came with this night? I mean, I I certainly do. Christmas Eve was always full of suspense. Was I naughty or nice this year? What would be under the tree and how much would be under the tree? I would know by morning, but even though I knew I would have the answers soon enough, it was always really hard to fall asleep. I remember lying awake in bed, counting sheep, restful on the outside but surging on the inside, having those flutters inside like butterflies, I think some people call them. My heart would be beating about a thousand miles an hour. Eventually, though, I would fall asleep and morning would come. And just like that, Christmas was over. The gifts were unwrapped, cookies were eaten, toys were played with. You know, Christmas night always seems to come quicker than Christmas day. I remember falling asleep on Christmas night as well almost before my head hit the pillow. I would typically be awash and content, completely satisfied, filled and happy with the fulfillment of the promise that Christmas had made to me that year. As a kid, it was the promise of gifts in the morning. And as an adult, it's usually the promise of time with family and with friends, a time to rest. I think our text this evening is also about the fulfillment of promises and the practice of waiting. And so I'm going to exhort you this evening to do two things. To wait like children do on Christmas, especially Christmas Eve. I basically started counting the days until Christmas, the day after Christmas on December 26th. So I want you to wait like children wait for Christmas and to rest like children do on Christmas night. These two items I've kind of tried to summarize for us in our one big thing this evening in to rest and to wait. So I want you to rest and wait. And as we work through the text, I want you to consider the first advent or coming, the first appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to rest in his finished work of salvation. I want you to be awash and content, completely satisfied with the fulfillment of God's promise to crush the head of the serpent and bless all people. I want you to be at peace tonight. I want you to rest in Jesus. Secondly, I want you to look forward to the second advent or coming, the second appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to long for the fulfillment of God's promise, the new heavens and the new earth, eternal bliss, life with God in the city of God, in a world filled with harmony and peace, a world where everything sad is untrue. I want you to thrill with anticipation and suspense I want you to surge with fluttering on the inside as you consider the return of the king. I want you to wait with eager expectation and hope. I want you to wait for Jesus. Rest and wait. We talked about this concept a little bit, this push and pull of the Christian life earlier in the month when we worked through Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, which reads like this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. 
And so this same concept, the same theme applies here. We're pushed from behind by the fulfilled promise of God and the coming work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're pulled forward by the not yet. That's the yet to be fulfilled promise of glory. And so we sit in life between the appearances of Jesus with this tension of what's already done and what's not yet done. We try to rest and wait. And so these themes are going to come out in our text today also as we work through them and through it in three sections. We're going to look at Joseph and Mary. We'll look at Anna. We're going to look at Simeon. As we do that, or before we do that, would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that you would sharpen our minds, that you would focus our hearts, that you would stir our souls, that you would ready us to hear your word. Let the experience of your grace be our true joy this Christmas season. Father, our hearts are so sinful and so wicked. Pray that you would help us to remember that this time of year isn't about what is under the tree, but about he who hung on the tree for our sins. God, speak to us tonight. To your name I pray, amen. Let's look at verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male child who opens the womb first shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And when they had performed everything, I drop down to verse 39 because we're talking about Joseph and Mary here. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, their own hometown of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon them. Joseph and Mary here are obedient. And like other faithful Jews, they're crossing the necessary T's and dotting the normal I's of the law because the law stated that the mother of a male child was unclean for seven days and then was to be confined for 33 days before journeying to the temple to offer a sacrifice of a lamb and a turtle dove to the Lord. The lamb as a burnt offering and the turtle dove as a sin offering. If she, could not afford, uh, if she could not afford a lamb, which you'll note, Mary and Joseph can't afford a lamb, she is able to then offer two turtle doves and two pigeons, one bird for the burnt offering and one bird as a sin offering. And so we're able to see that Mary and Joseph are either poor or of moderate income. They're certainly not wealthy because they can't afford a lamb. And that's just a, a side note for you. The obedience of Joseph and Mary, though, is complete. That's the point of this section. They circumcise Jesus according to the law. They name him according to the word of God spoken to them through an angel. They purify themselves according to the law. And they offer Jesus as holy to the Lord. They dedicate him to God's service. That's the point. Mary and Joseph are devoted to God and his plan, even though they don't understand the whole thing. Not yet. They're obeying, but they they certainly haven't arrived yet. They certainly don't have a full-orbed knowledge or a full picture of what God is doing through their son. They don't have the answers to all of their intellectual questions, but they're following God by faith. They're doing things according to to the law. Likewise, I think that we're never going to have all the answers to every intellectual curiosity. We're never going to arrive or understand the fullness of every circumstance and situation. 
But that's not the point of the Bible. It's not the point of the gospel. The point and purpose of the Bible, of the gospel, of Jesus, is to tell the story of how darkness and sin and evil entered the world and how God has acted to rescue his beloved, that's you and me, from that darkness, sin and evil. The gospel is about God keeping his promise and rescuing us from our brokenness, from our suffering by becoming like us and being broken and suffering for us. The good news that brings joy is about Jesus making peace between us and God by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. The gospel is about an experience of grace. It's about God dealing with the darkness in the world and in us. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you have all the answers. It doesn't mean you have it altogether or that you're better than anyone else. It's actually quite the opposite. Becoming a Christian is admitting I don't have it altogether, and that you're just as lost as everyone else. Becoming a Christian simply means that you've heard the good news and believed it. It means that you've experienced truth and grace. You're never going to have all the answers, but God has given you the answers you need to know him. And knowing him is really all you need at the end of the day. Friends, we don't follow God because all of our intellectual curiosities are satisfied, but because Jesus is all satisfying and he proved himself worthy of our trust. Christians obey God's word because they know and love God. It's an expression of that love. Mary and Joseph are performing everything according to the law as an expression of their affection for God and their trust in his plan for their lives. So let me ask you, do you trust God like this? Have you had an experience of grace? Have you encountered Jesus? God's way really is best, even if we don't understand it. There's certainly more to be said here, but but let's move on. After Joseph and Mary perform all the things according to the law, they go home and we read verse 40. And the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. So we see Jesus growing physically and spiritually. He's setting the stage for an event in the temple that will come 12 years later, which will show us just how self-aware he is. Jesus is the Messiah King, the servant of God, and he knows himself to be the son of God. At the end of this pericope of scripture, we will have seen angels and shepherds, men and women all alike testify to the greatness of who Jesus is. Now, if Mary and Joseph are anything like me, I think that they're hearing about how great and how awesome their kid is going to be. And so they're waiting for big things to happen. In my sanctified imagination, every day they're waiting for something miraculous. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah King. What is he going to do? If they're anything like me, perhaps they're a little bit cynical too. And again, in my imagination, I hear Joseph saying something akin to, this kid isn't so special. It's been eight months and he's not walking yet. Son of God, he can't even walk. He's not even speaking in full sentences. Are we sure there's anything that great about this kid? I mean, my family, we're walkers. We, we were walking at five and six months. He's called salvation, life, and light, and glory. I mean, if I were them, I would be waiting for something amazing to happen every second of every day. And I would be willing to bet that Joseph and Mary were also. 
And the funny thing here is, is that Jesus doesn't even start his ministry until he's in his 30s. My point is this, is they had many ordinary days with ordinary obedience and ordinary waiting, waiting for the extraordinary to happen. But the irony is, is that the extraordinary was already happening. Jesus' perfect obedience in the ordinary, his perfect life is what theologians call his active obedience. This is how he fulfills the law of God on our behalf. This obedience is given to us when we trust in him and follow him by faith. God credits it to our account as if we obeyed him ourselves. When we believe this obedience is ours. So every moment of every day of Jesus' life was actually extraordinary as he obeyed God's law perfectly. He was sinless. Joseph and Mary didn't know the importance of those ordinary days. Daily, Jesus was living a life of greatness, even though they couldn't see it. And daily, Jesus is doing great things in our lives, in your life, even if you can't always see it. Too often we miss the beauty of God's work in our lives because we dismiss the ordinary daily grind as boring or uninteresting. Friends, don't waste your waiting for the return of Christ, but experience the wonder of the wait. Take note of the new mercies of God each day. Bathe in his grace. Grace, don't just absentmindedly sip your coffee in the morning. Smell it. Taste it. Give thanks for it. Don't take your friends and family for granted. Enjoy them. Love them. Grow with them. For it's in your normal experiences, your normal daily grind, that God is shaping you. He's shaping you in the ordinary. So as he's shaping you, wait for his return with wonder. The child grew And became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Notice Jesus didn't come out of the womb quoting the Torah from memory with a beard and six-pack abs. Although most of the pictures that I see of him, he developed those somewhere on down the road. He must have been running miles in the morning before he prayed or something. But he didn't arrive as a fully mature man. But he was the fullness of God in helpless faith. He grew and was shaped by God every day. God the Father prepared God the Son for the cross in the ordinary. While Joseph and family are on their way to perform everything according to the law of the Lord, they enter the temple complex and they come across an old man and an old woman. The old woman happens to be a prophetess, and we're going to see what happens with her first. She's waiting for the bridegroom. She's waiting for the redemption of Israel. This is what we read in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from the time she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. And to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So to recap here a little bit, Anna was married for seven years. If we assume marriage at the age of 13 or 14, which is weird now, but normal then, 
in the ancient Near East, it's okay for them to get married that young. It's normal practice, not, not odd like we would think it today. So she would have been widowed sometime in her 20s. And as the text makes clear, she remained a widow the rest of her life. And it was a woman who chose a lifetime of service to God over remarriage. This is an action that would have been highly regarded in the first, first century. It was an intense devotion to God. She is a humble saint. She blesses God and God blesses her. He reveals his purposes in Christ to her. She'd been waiting for the redemption of Israel, waiting for God to rescue his people. And now with the arrival of Jesus in the temple complex, she's able to give thanks in a new way. She's able to proclaim to all those that, like her, have been waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, that God has been faithful to keep his promises. God keeps his promises and he rewards the faith of those that trust him. Anna has been worshiping through fasting and prayer night and day. She's totally given herself to the Lord and her faith is rewarded. Friends, God reveals himself to the humble. That's why Jesus starts the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are the lowly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they will see God. Anna is the kind of person who experiences the grace of God. She's the kind of person that inherits the kingdom of heaven, that is comforted, that receives mercy, that sees God and is satisfied. Don't confuse the gospel, though. She's not blessed by God because of her pious religious devotion. No, no, no. She's blessed by God because she acknowledges her spiritual bankruptcy. She confesses her need for redemption, her need for a savior, her need for Jesus. Anna's devotion to God is not a quid pro quo situation. Salvation isn't a quid pro quo deal. It's not a, I'll fast and pray, God, if you give me this. I'll go to church, God, if you give me this. That's not how salvation works. It's a coming to God in humility, empty, saying, I need you. There's nothing in me that makes me worthy of your love, save for my trust in Christ, by whose blood you find me acceptable. And it's only by him that I'm able to be in your presence. Now I can't bear to be away from your presence. Oh, that we would all be like Anna. Oh, that we would all long for the presence of God and seek him continually. Friends, did you know anyone can be like Anna? You know that anybody can have a relationship with Jesus. All it takes is a confession of your inability to live a perfect life. Confession of your sin. Your need for a savior, your need for Jesus. If you want to experience God, really know him, then humble yourself. Admit your inability to be your own savior. Savior, Believe in Jesus as your savior. Confess him as Lord. The life that you were meant to live, the life you were created to live, is available to you in Jesus. Don't wait any longer. Trust him. Christmas for Anna meant that one day she would again be a bride. 
as part of the people of God. She would be part of the body of Christ and wed to King Jesus by faith. Anna had waited faithfully for Jerusalem's rescue. And now she was testifying about the presence of God's, the presence of God's promise and of God's faithfulness to keep his promise. She waited with wonder and she waited without losing heart. She waited faithfully. Likewise, we ought to wait with wonder and wait faithfully. And so now we come to the center of our text. We meet Simeon in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for the glory to your people, Israel. Joseph and Mary with Jesus in tow are working their way through the temple complex when when this guy Simon comes in and snatches their baby up from them, right? That's how I picture it anyway. They're walking through, getting ready to go into the temple. And he just picks up the kid, picks Jesus up. And he proclaims, I can die now. My eyes have seen your salvation, your rescue, the life that you've made available to men and women. You know, in reading this scene, I couldn't help but think of my own experience when Chelsea and I were in China last March. Everywhere we went, people would, would come up to us and stop us and tell us how beautiful Elliot is. Oh, he's a porcelain doll. He's so cute. Might I hold him? We would, we would let them hold him. He was a little celebrity over there. They love kids. In fact, you don't have to wait in, in any line anywhere. People just let you go through the VIP lane, even in the airport. It was a rude awakening when we got back to the States in Dulles and had to wait in line, weren't able to just go through that express lane anymore. A little bit of culture shock for us coming back. But this is, this is a little bit different than the Chinese just enjoying our baby and kindly sharing in that joy. Simeon is a righteous and devout man. Note that he's not, he's not a priest, as some have suggested. That's not in the text. He's a regular guy that loves God. And he has the Holy Spirit who has showed him that he will see God's rescuer Before he dies. So when he exclaims, I can die now. It's because he's completely satisfied in the fulfillment of God's promise. It's just like sometimes you say, man, I can die now that I've had those chicken wings. Or I can die now that I've had that apple pie. I can die now that I did this or that. It's complete. It's fulfilled. Simeon is joyed. He isn't saying, all right, God, saw Jesus, the savior of the world. Please kill me right now. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, now that my eyes have beheld the king, I am at peace. I am awash in content, completely satisfied with the fulfillment of God's promise to crush the head of the serpent and to bless all people. Non-Christian, I want you to be at peace tonight. I want you to have the joy that Simeon had and the joy that all those in Christ have. I want you to hear and believe the gospel, to see God's salvation. Be at peace to trust in Jesus, to rest in Jesus. And Christian, I want the same for you. 
I've said it many times that the, the good news of peace with God, the gospel is not only the ABCs of the Christian faith, but the A to Z of the Christian faith. We never get over Jesus. The godly life, the good life flows from us, not from a spirit of do goodness or self-righteousness, but from Christ's own righteousness. So every good end of war, every good work, every good thing we do flows from our status of being in Jesus. We're all susceptible to trying to prove our own worth through career or power or wealth or influence or control or whatever. The list is long. We try to do these things even though God has said to us, you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We still forget and we try to let go of his hand and take care of us ourselves. We try to do things our way instead of his way and it doesn't work. So we find ourselves once more turning from our way towards God's way. That's what the Christian life is. Continual repentance and forgiveness. It's a continued saying, I'm wrong, God, and you are right. Will you forgive me? And by your spirit, make me more like you. Friends, take hold of the truth of the gospel that you might have peace. Rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He's done this work for you. He's given his life for you. Gives himself to you as a gift by grace. It's the height of folly to reject this gift. I mean, even in our own culture, if somebody gives you a gift and you say, I don't want that. It's a terrible gift. It's offensive. How much more offensive is it to reject the death of the Son of God on your behalf? This is why only the lowly, only the poor in spirit come to Jesus. Because only the lowly recognize their need for a Savior and accept the gift. Which brings us to verse 33. And his, excuse me, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Simeon has blessed the family, and now he shares a less positive and uplifting word. He summarizes Jesus' ministry in two images. He's the one who is set for the falling and rising of many in Israel. And he's a sign. The first image is drawn from passages in Isaiah where God is portrayed as setting up a stone of stumbling over which some fall. It's a precious cornerstone that will not disappoint those who trust in him, though. He's also a sign that will be opposed. Humans will resist Jesus. For them, Jesus will not be a hope of a promise fulfilled, but a figure who is to be opposed. The sign is characterized best as one of contention, not only rejection. Because the point of the context here is division. Things are not going to go well for Jesus or for those that follow him. Simeon is further highlighting this contention in verse 35 by saying, And a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The first part of verse 35 is a remark to Mary, which is prophetic of the emotional pain that she's going to experience as Jesus divides Israel throughout his ministry and is eventually divided himself in his crucifixion. The second part of the verse describes the effect of Jesus' ministry on everyone. He will divide people by exposing the thoughts of their hearts. Jesus' ministry will showcase where hearts really are before God. 
Jesus will expose those who do not truly believe and rely on him. How people respond to God's promise, how you respond to God's promise, is made evident by how you respond to Jesus, whose presence will reveal your true colors. Jesus comes and people choose. Some oppose him, stumble over him and fall. Jesus is the, pre- the peace that brings division. He brings peace to some, those that trust in him, and condemnation to others. Those that oppose Jesus fall and they miss the promise of God. They miss peace with God. Friends, I implore you, do not oppose Jesus. Don't miss the promise, but trust in him. The gospel is hard truth. It says you need a savior, you need a rescuer, and you do. It's hard truth, but it's beautiful truth. The cross of Christ shows us that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, and at the same time more loved and accepted than we ever dared dream. It's good news that brings joy. Friends, it's Christmas Eve, and Christmas ought remind us to be awash in content, completely satisfied with the fulfillment of God's promise to crush the head of the serpent and bless all people. It should teach us to be at peace, to rest in Jesus. Christmas should also thrill us with anticipation and suspense. It should cause us to surge with fluttering as we consider the return of the King. It should teach us to wait with eager expectation and hope for the return of Jesus. A few weeks ago, I quoted from the popular Christmas song, Joy to the World. Did you know that this hymn, the author originally he penned it for the return of Christ and not Christmas? It was penned for the second coming rather than Christmas, but got transformed into a Christmas hymn. Note, note the words, note the lyrics here in terms of thinking of Jesus' return. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's new heaven, new earth. Friends, joy has come to the world with Jesus' first coming. But joy has not yet finished coming into the world. Christmas is not yet over. Therefore, we rest in Jesus who has brought us joy already. And we wait for Jesus to bring his kingdom and his joy in its fullness. It's a tension between the already and the not yet. And so we Rest in Christ. We rest in the accomplished work of Jesus. And we wait for his return. Jesus came the first time not to bring judgment, but to bear our judgment. And upon his return, he's bringing the final judgment. He's going to end sin and evil and wickedness once for all. Are you in him? The only way God can end evil without ending you is if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your salvation has appeared so that we might be at peace, 
so that we might rest in our relationship with you. We thank you that our waiting for your return is not wasted, that you are at work in us every day in the daily grind. Help us to marvel and wonder at your work in the wait. We thank you that by your grace through faith we can experience you and enjoy your promises because all your promises find their yes in Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus this evening and celebrate that he, the light of the world, has come and dealt with the darkness and he will return to end evil completely. Lord, we thank you for being our sacrificial lamb. We thank you that you came, that you were slain, and that you raised, and that like you, we too shall rise. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.